Well, last weekend I uh, was doing some ministry at a men's retreat and at a church in Iowa, the homeland for me, and uh, we had Charles Ware here last weekend, and I understand he was a tremendous blessing, and that is wonderful to hear, and appreciate Charles uh, being with us. He actually somewhat inconvenienced himself in order to uh, to be with us, so I especially appreciate it. And then this uh, yesterday, Friday night and yesterday, I also was at a different men's retreat, this time in Lafayette, and uh, was doing ministry there. Actually, Charles was also one of the speakers at uh, this men's retreat, so we were together. Um, and... What that means is, is that I've been doing a lot of speaking the last, like, seven or eight days, and as I prepared for this weekend, rather than trying to pull off a whole nother additional message on top of all the other ones, I decided to do the message that they asked me to do at the men's retreat for this weekend. So we're taking a little break from the Love Series, we'll be back in it next weekend, and ladies... I just, I, I, sisters, would it be okay with you if just one weekend we call the men in particular to a, to a greater godly walk with the Lord? Would that be okay with you? Just one weekend to do that with the men? Okay. Now, this is not to say that the principles we're talking about don't apply to the sisterin that are here, but... Uh, some of the analogies, illustrations, and points are going to be particularly focused on men. They asked me to speak on this subject. Real men trust the wisdom of God. Real men trust the wisdom of God. I, I could go along with that. I, I like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good. It's good. Real men trust the wisdom of God. Here's the problem I have with it is that I know my own heart on this matter. And I know that all too often I don't trust the wisdom of God. Rather, I am much prefer to trust the wisdom of me. Now. I could be the only man in the room feeling that or believing that, but I've been here long enough to know that many of you are just as bad as I am in this regard. Some of you actually I know well enough to know that you are worse than I am in this regard. (laughs) But this is a message on wisdom, not uh, humility and self-righteousness. So uh, I know for me that I am basically inclined towards my own way of thinking about things. That when I'm facing a decision or I'm in crisis of some kind, that I I have a certain way of processing things and I come to conclusions that once I come to those conclusions, everything in me wants to go that direction. So, I like the subject. I just find it convicting and hard to speak on. Now, why am I the way that I am? Deep down in the recesses of my heart, here is why I am this way. It is because I want to be God. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself right now, why are we here today? This is, 
why, why is he up there? He would seem to be the least qualified, of course, if he wants to be God, to be up here talking about why we should trust in the wisdom of God. Well, I would like men for you to look into the deep recesses of your own heart and ask yourself, why is it that I want to be in charge? Why is it that I want to be in control? Why is it that I want to be viewed as a bastion of knowledge and virtue and to project essentially to the world around us that we're good? Now, I've just had two weekends of men's retreats, and I think that many of the conversations at these men's retreats are probably similar to the kinds of conversations that even go on in our church amongst men, where we get together and we're like, hey, the other guy's like, hey. Now, sometimes that's as deep as it goes right there. (laughs) But really good conversational men will be like, how's it going? And from this point on, oftentimes it goes something like this. Great. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Really, really good. Well, how's your wife doing? Totally happy. (laughs) All the time. Happy. How are your children doing? Almost perfect. They are. They're awesome. Just awesome. How are you doing spiritually? Well, I'm at church, am I not? Here I am. I could be home watching something or like all my other friends, but no, I'm here. I mean, this says something, doesn't it? I'm here. And we project through these kinds of, I don't know if you just call them avoidances, we, we want people, as men, we want other people to view us as having all of our ducks in a row, that everything is good. We're, we're good. In fact, we're wonderful. Not just wonderful, wonderful, we're almost divine. We want to be God. We want to be self-sufficient, which is fine and dandy, of course, while life is going along in a positive way and we think oh i must be doing things right my way of thinking is is must be the right way of thinking but what inevitably happens is in every man's life it turns in directions that are painful and now the man who up to this point has been the self-sufficient man begins to grapple with the reality that i am not the god of my life i'm not in control Our health fails us. Our marriage fails us. Our children disappoint us. Our employer pink slips us. Or in a moment of like mental clarity, we look in the mirror and we realize that life is very quickly passing by. We look at the young men, and this I'm revealing my own heart. We look at the young men and we see how high they can jump and fast they can run and quick they heal from after doing things. And we look in the mirror and we see little wrinkles starting and a little bit of this going on here in the middle. And it's like, I'm getting old. I look like my dad. (laughs) And a thinking man, a thinking man will resonate with the last words that Frank Sinatra said on this earth, I'm losing. I'm losing. 
Men start off self-sufficient and powerful and great and strong, but in the end, we're losing. And it's hard for us to come to grips with that. And what is even harder for us, once we acknowledge that we are not self-sufficient, is to ask for help. Men do not want to ask for help. Because implicit in the asking for help is an acknowledgement that I don't know it all. That I don't have what it takes. That I'm not up to the challenge. A man doesn't want to admit that. We need help. In fact, men, say those words with me today. We need help. It comes out hard, doesn't it? And some of you are like, I ain't saying it. And I'm not saying it because you told us to say it. You're not in charge. I'm in charge. And I have no problem with control issues in my life. Yeah. So, as we come to the subject of trusting the wisdom of God, the first thing that I want to say, and this is not the main point, it's just a foundational point, and it's not from James, it's actually from 1 Corinthians 1, is that Christianity requires, in order to step into the realm of salvation in Christ, it requires a man to do what is counterintuitive for a man. And it's true for you ladies as well. We must believe in a crucified Savior and acknowledge that he has done what I cannot do. It is to acknowledge that I need help and to humble myself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The basic message of Christianity rubs the natural man the wrong way because it forces us to say what we in our natural sinful selves do not want to say. And that is that I can't save myself. In fact, we see it right here. We preach Christ crucified. In other words, he died in our place. He saved us. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The word there in the Greek for stumbling block is the word scandalon. We get the word scandalous from it. One, uh, one dictionary uh, uh, defines it this way. That which gives offense or causes revulsion. That which arouses opposition. An object of anger or disapproval. The cross is fundamentally offensive to the natural man apart from the spirit. And that's why in this world, particularly if you watch the media or other, other people like that, you talk about Jesus and you talk about uh, di- dying on the cross. And you can just see the eyes rolling back in their heads, can't you? 
Oh, that. I think of Bill uh, Maher, who came out with that movie, a religious, which was a made-up word. And don't you hate people that do that? <laughs> Religion and ridiculous. Religious. What was he saying there? This whole religion, it's, it's, there's nothing to it. It's so silly. And the world looks at Christianity that way. Because it forces us to admit that we need help. And it strikes the natural man's sensibilities as being just wrong. Because it elevates God and it diminishes man. Man doesn't want man diminished. Man wants man exalted. And who cares what happens to God? It's all about me, right? It's much like those Chilean miners. And I just find myself thinking about those guys. You know, we talked about them weeks ago. You know what? They're still in that hole. All these weeks later, they're still down there. And they're saying they're going to be there until Christmas. 33 miners, 540 square feet, no showers, no deodorant. You want to talk about the ultimate men's retreat? That's it right there. <laughs> Do those Chilean miners have any problem acknowledging that they are in need of help? No. Why? Because the desperation of their situation is so obvious. I mean, they can't, those guys, they could start digging right now and they could dig until they die and they are not going to get themselves out of that hole. They need somebody to come to the rescue. They need somebody to come to their aid. And so they're digging this hole, this shaft all the way down and they're going to send a cage. And I, I, I think about, can you imagine how they're going to decide who gets to get in the first cage? You know? How are they going to decide that? Because they're all wanting to get in the cage. There won't be any problem with any one of those men wanting to get in the cage because they realize they need help. And the gospel, men, the gospel requires us to acknowledge and enthusiastically embrace the fact that spiritually we are in need of help. We are in the spiritual mind. We can't save ourselves. All the things that I try to do in order to make myself right with God and men can't do it. We need a rescue. And Christ is the rescue. The wisdom of God sent to us so that now there is a way for us to be restored to our relationship with our Creator. And it requires faith and belief which flows from a basic acknowledgement that I need to be saved and I cannot save myself. It's a pretty good illustration, I think, of our spiritual condition before God. Now, here's why I say all of that on the matter of trusting in the wisdom of God. Oftentimes, I think Christians think that I come to faith in Christ. So there's a kind of faith that saves me. And we look back in our life, if we're a Christian, we came to that realization at some point or that embracing of Christ as Savior. So we, oh yeah, that is when I had saving faith. And then we look at the living out of faith in our life and we view it like it's some other faith. Like, I, okay, now i got to get that faith that I live by every day. No, 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 no. It is the same faith. It's the same faith. 
applied now in the day-to-day of life. Here's the logic of it. If I can trust the wisdom of God in Christ to save me from hell and to give me heaven and eternal life, why can I not trust him for the day-to-day matters that I am dealing with as a man? You see? If I can trust him to keep me out of hell and to give me eternal life, why can't I trust his wisdom in my marriage and in my parenting and in my singleness and in my work and in my school and in my hobbies or whatever it is? It's not a different faith. It is the same faith that embraces Jesus as Lord. Now in the day-to-day moments of surrender and submission, applying what God's word says to all of the categories of my life. And a real man, as they say at this conference, or a godly man, is a man who is wanting to do that. And is trusting that God's way is better than whatever way I may think. It's the same faith. I think that's so important because, I don't have time for this, but here's why I think it's so important. is because there are so many men, oh, I've taken care of the matter with God. Oh, yes, I'm a believer. Back in the day, I remember when I came to faith in Christ. Oh, really? Well, how's that that going like right now in your life? Oh, I don't know so much. I don't know. You're like, what? No, 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 no. You can't separate them. It's the same. If Christ is my Lord and my faith and my belief in him, then he, in salvation, then he is in all the other things in my life and he needs to be. I ain't saying that next service, but maybe that helped a little bit. Do you get what I'm saying with that? And men especially want to kind of have this dichotomy between what I took care of so I go to heaven and then the way that I live my life. Uh, No, it is all together. All right, now James. Okay, James 1. How, how do we get this wisdom and how do we trust in it? This is what James is going to help us with. Beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. May God bless his word to us today. We don't have time to get too much into the context, but just to notice that verses 5 through 8 are in a broader context of James' teaching about trials. He says in verse Two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. So we see James here acknowledging something, that when we are in a trial, suddenly our life is, it starts to feel like it's spinning out of control. People will say things like this in the midst of a trial. My life isn't making sense right now. It doesn't make any sense. And what they mean by that is that the, the, the aspects of life that before I had kind of a grid and everything felt comfortable and it made sense. In the trials, like, and these things are spiraling out of control and I'm seeking to find some 
meaning in this. I need some place to put my feet down and say, this is true. This is what I believe. And to that end, James says, you need wisdom. And boy, in the midst of trials, don't we realize how much we need wisdom? Are you with me? Absolutely. So, what should we do? Here's the first thing. Ask for it. Ask God for wisdom. That's verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Now, if we're going to ask God for wisdom, we better make sure we know what wisdom is. So, very quickly, what is wisdom? Wisdom is not being smart. Wisdom is not knowing a lot about something. Uh, Wisdom is not self-confidence in the trial. It's not having all the facts straight about something. This is what wisdom is. It is the ability to live according to God's truth in the day-to-day of life. The ability to live by God's truth in the day-to-day of life. This is what Solomon, if you read the Proverbs, and I would encourage all of you to do it on a regular basis, this is what Solomon realized that his sons needed. They didn't need to graduate from the very best schools. They didn't need to have a really great free throw percentage. They didn't need to score something on Halo. What they needed was wisdom. And boy, to the young men in our church, I hope that you're listening. What we want in your life more than anything else is a love for God in Christ and an application of that wisdom in all of the day-to-day things that you face. May God raise up godly, wise, young men in this church. Amen? Solomon realized his sons need it. Writes in Proverbs 8, wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. 835, for whoever finds wisdom finds life and receives favor from the Lord. Now, what does that mean? If you find wisdom, you find life. Here's what you mean. It means the man who appropriates the truth of God primarily found in his word, and can apply that to all of the temptations and trials and difficulties that every day represents for us as men. That is a kind of living that is real life. If you find that, you have found life. That's what he's saying. And that is very, very valuable. More valuable than any amount of money. Here's what one author says. That wisdom sees the meaning and significance of things. I like that. This is an opposition in Proverbs to the fool. fool. The fool is somebody, life just happens to him. He has no discernment about what's going on in his life. He can't see what really matters. He values things that don't matter in the end. He doesn't value things that do matter in the end. Uh, you, you, You try to talk to a fool. He doesn't listen. He's wise in his own eyes. This is the pro, this is the, the, the fool in the book of Proverbs. But the wise man is the one who can discern from the wisdom that God's word has given him, which means that we are Spending time learning, growing in God's revelation to us. It's, it's in the heart in such a way that allows me then to live my life this way. 
This is the wise man who sees his life through the grid of the values and priorities and directions that God has given in his word. And boy, do we need men like that. Solidly biblical, godly, wise men. This is what Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount when he said it's the wise man who builds his house on the rock and it is the fool who builds his house on the sand. The wise man's house stands, but the fool's house falls. That's wisdom. So what happens then is in the course of life, the self-sufficient man eventually is grappling with overwhelming things in his life that are all pointing to one conclusion that he doesn't want to come to. I am not sufficient. That I am not God. I need help. Now, that might come out in questions like, how could this happen? What does this mean? Does God love me? Why would God allow this? What does the future hold? Am I going to make it? Have I done something wrong? Which way should we go? And it's easy in these kind of moments to... Feel fear and discouragement. I'm trying to figure all this out and I can't make sense of it. But this points out something that I want you to get this. When we are in a financial trial, what we don't need is more money. And when we are in a marital trial, what we don't need is a new spouse. And when we are in a vocational trial, what we don't need is a new job. Did I say that already? Okay, it's the third time doing this, I can't remember. Uh, In those moments, what we need is wisdom. We need wisdom. And no doubt we've got men here today who are right in that. They're like, oh man, that is me. I don't know what's going on. I need God's help. Acknowledging that is the first step. So, Where do we get wisdom from? And what we find James saying is that we get it from God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. And we see really two characteristics here of the kind of giving that God gives to us. First of all, he gives generously. This means that he is not, he's not frugal. He's not cheap. He's not in heaven kind of going, okay, fine. You can have it. He's for us. Men, listen to me. The God of heaven is for you. He wants to help you. And he says, ask me for what you need. I want to give it to you. And Jesus points this out in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, if, if, actually I'll read it here. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I don't know what better news I have for you than this, that on this day, this morning, in the midst of whatever trial that you're in, there is a God in heaven filled with wisdom who wants to help you and will do so generously if you ask him. We see the second characteristic, which is also assuring. He does this without finding fault. Get this straight in your mind. And I, Steve, get this straight in your mind. (laughs) I say this to myself because I feel oftentimes when I am in a trial and I'm, or a temptation or whatever it is, I feel like I'm coming to God and it's the same old thing. You ever feel that way in prayer? Like, okay, God, it's me again. 
And I'm praying the same prayer that I've prayed every Tuesday for the last 10 years of my life. And sometimes we feel like we've got to sort of word it differently so God doesn't realize that we're basically asking for the same thing. (laughs) He gives to us without finding fault. He's not in heaven when we ask him for help, thinking to himself, what is your problem? Why can't you figure this out on your own? Why are you bothering me? Are you stupid? What's wrong with you? That's not the God in heaven. He wants to help us. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Psalm 145, verse 8. And when he turns to, or when we turn to him for help, all he feels is love. That's the God we're worshiping. He's for you. Ask him for help. The second thing that James says here is that when we do so, we must be confident in God's ability to bring us through the trial. And that's what he says in verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. There is a condition required for God to help us. And that condition is that we must believe that he, his way is the best way, that his way is the right way. This verse has troubled me for, uh, troubled me for a long time because I would then try in my prayers to sort of gin up enough faith so that God then could feel free in order to do what I was asking him to do. So I would say things like this in prayer, God, I'm really coming to you. I mean it this time. I mean it. I need your help. And then I'd like wait for his help, which in my mind was one particular thing happening. And and then it didn't happen. And so then I would go back to God and be like, okay, God, I obviously didn't mean it enough in the previous prayer. So this time I really, really, really mean it. And then it wouldn't happen. And I would interpret that to mean I don't have enough faith. Because if I had enough faith and God would do what I wanted, right? Wrong. This is not... A question of believing and not doubting. It is a question of who I am depending on and who I am trusting in the asking. The word there for doubt means this. One who is divided in mind and who wavers between two opinions. Am I in my life as I'm dealing with some trial or whatever it is, am I wanting what I want or am I wanting what God wants? And typically for us, I think, we want both. And so there's a kind of, you know, well, I'm in a trial, I need to pray. And so we pray, but in our hearts, we're really trusting in our own logic and our own way of thinking of things, and God knows our hearts. And what this is saying is that we, when we ask, we must believe and not doubt. We must not, men especially, lean towards our own way of thinking in it but have a resolution that this is God's way and I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to do it his way, no matter what. Now, there's a great illustration of this in Joshua 5. The first series I ever did at Bethel Church was from the book of Joshua. And I discovered this in Joshua 5. It's been a favorite of mine ever since. And I think you'll know after I tell you why it resonates at a men's retreat. In Joshua 5, here's the situation. 
Moses has led the people to the edge of the Jordan River. Moses dies. Joshua now is the leader. And he leads them through the Jordan River. And the people realize God has, okay, this is, Joshua's the guy now. They get on the other side of the Jordan River. And they're in a very precarious situation. Because behind them now is a river. In front of them, literally just a couple miles away, is the city of Jericho. Which was the greatest military city of its day. So this is like a fortress. Remember they talked about the walls there. It wasn't just the walls. It was all the men inside who could kill you. There was a, it was an army. It was a fortress. Think of you know, Fort Campbell, whatever you want to think of some great military thing. That's what Jericho was. Everybody knew it. And no doubt as the, as the Israelites came across the Jordan River, I mean, they're not just in Jericho playing games. These are military guys. There's spies that are watching them. There's all these spies peeking over the edge of cliffs, you know, and what are they doing down there? And they're watching every move. And the guys back in Jericho, you know, they're sharpening their swords. We're going to get those Israelites, man. We're going to take them out. So they're, they're arming up for war in Jericho. Israel now, here they are, the newbies in the land. And what does God say to Joshua but this? He says, Joshua... I want you to take flint knives and circumcise the army. This was a good illustration yesterday at the men's retreat. <laughs> now imagine with me, you're Joshua, brand new leaders, kind of new at this, you know, and you're wanting to make friends and build camaraderie. <laughs> and God says, Joshua, I want you to circumcise the army. I sort of see Joshua doing this. What? What? Do it. Now, in my mind, I also imagine how that announcement went. Okay, men, gather together here. We got a little... I know that I'm new. It's probably not a time to make major decisions that will impact everyone, but God has said that... I mean, it's, it's like the dumbest thing in military history that has ever been done because to circumcise the army a couple miles from the greatest military fortress of its day was essentially to render the army useless they are completely without any protection now the dumbest thing ever followed only closely in a second which is to march around a military fortress and blow horns and I rather imagine after the mass circumcision, that one was no big deal. Uh, but here's what it shows, is that for Joshua and for the Israelites, they had settled the matter as to whose wisdom they were going to follow. Humanly speaking, it was foolish to do that. But God has said, and you know what? We're going his way. We saw what happened when our forefathers didn't go his way. We're here now, whatever you say, Lord. That's what it means to trust in the wisdom of God. You know, obedience always makes sense to God. It always makes sense to obey the Lord. As the song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way that we can be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And when we trust God, man, here's what happens. Now God is free to come to our aid because we are not going to take the credit for it. And God is about 
His glory. We sang the song, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever, right? That's what God's about. And so for men, we are so, we're so proud. We're so, mm, look at me. God has to humble us so that he can use us as we depend upon his wisdom, which frees him then to do great things to his glory and not to our own. See how that works? Okay, we're in the home stretch here. James finally says, consider the instability that not trusting God produces. He says, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The man there is the man who's wavering between, I should, should I trust God or should I trust men? And, you know, we can't look, God made us so we can't look two ways at the same time. I can't look this way and this way. You can try this afterwards. I can't. I can't. I can only look one way. I got like one nose that looks one way. And similarly for us, our trust is either going to be in ourselves and in our resources and in our ability to do something, or it's going to be in what God can do. Don't waver between those two opinions. And James makes the point that the tragedy of the double-minded man is that in his attempt to succeed in his life, he is actually creating instability throughout his entire character. Because the double-minded man is unstable in all he does. We want to compartmentalize, right? I've got my religious life, my spiritual life. I've got the things that I believe. But then I have this one area over here. This, is the, this, this area is my area. It's not under the Lordship of Christ. I know that it's not under it, but it's just one little area, and it's not so big, and it can't affect all the rest. And what James says is, no, we are whole persons. Weakness in one area oozes into the rest. Compromise in one area creates instability throughout the entire fabric of our character. So that, for example, a man cannot quietly, with nobody knowing, in the darkness of his office or room, Look at pornography on the, on the computer or on his smartphone. And it not affect the way that he views and assesses the women in his life. The one instability oozes over and corrupts the rest of his character. Double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Another example of this would be a man who maybe in his, in his workplace or at the gym or some other place has, a, has a, a group of guys that he is, feels free to be profane with. And to, in, in that profanity, both in word or joke or whatever it is, to create a kind of pleasure in it. And for that not to impact when he goes home or he's with his family or, or he's with his small group, for that pleasure and humor to not create a kind of p- corrupted pleasure that impacts all these other areas of his life. The one oozes into the other. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, like a house, where if there's cracks in the foundation of the house... You may not know it, but all of a sudden you're closing your door and it doesn't close quite right. 
And you look at the drywall, and there's cracks developing in the drywall. And you look at the roof, and you're like, that kind of looks like it's, is that square? And what's the problem? The problem's not the roof. The problem's not the drywall. The problem's not the doors. The problem is the foundation. Instability at the foundation creates problems throughout the house. So don't be that person. Try to be a whole man resting in the wisdom of God. So let's say I need wisdom. I go to God and I ask him for it. And in the asking him for it, in my heart, I have resolved that I want to do what God's wisdom dictates in this. And I've sought other means of wisdom. I've talked to godly men and women and I've sought their counsel. I've had people praying for me. I've been searching the word of God to see if there's any direction that that would seem to indicate. When I get to the end of all of that, I still have to make a decision. And how can I know if what I'm thinking about doing is leaning in the direction of God's wisdom? I got five things quickly and then we're done. Number one, is my leaning in this consistent with what God's word says on the matter? Now, tons of our decisions, God's word, there's no verse for it where you go, oh, I'm supposed to move to Leroy and I'm supposed to do this. It's not going to say that, okay? It's not going to say that. But it is going to give a general way of living, a broad perspective in the kind of life that pleases the Lord. Does this decision or this issue or temptation or trial or the way I'm responding to them, is it consistent with the general perspective, worldview of the scripture? Secondly, Does this proposition help further God's goal in my life? What is God wanting to do in the life of a man? He is wanting to conform him to the likeness of Christ, Romans 8. Is this proposition that I'm contemplating or or this issue that I'm dealing with, am I finding myself wanting to run away from the opportunity to die to myself and to become more like Christ? Am I fleeing some responsibility in this? Or am I going in a direction that will allow God to form my character and to shape me more into the likeness of his son. Third, does it sound like wisdom from heaven? James 3 tells us what wisdom from heaven will sound and feel like. Here's what it will feel like. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If you want to know who to listen to, people are giving various voices are telling you what to do. Listen to the one that sounds like James 3.17. Fourth, is it likely that Satan isn't pleased with it? I have found this to be very helpful. Sometimes it's hard to know what God wants you to do, right? What's God's wisdom in this? Sometimes it's easier to know what Satan would want you to do. So maybe you should say, you know, what is the will of Satan in this matter? And sometimes it's very obvious what he would want you to do. Figure that out and then do the opposite. It's likely to be God's will in the matter. I love that point right there. I can tell by the looks in your faces that perhaps not as much with you, but that is, what was the message on today? How to know the will of Satan, you know? Really, what was his point? Do the opposite. Do the opposite. Fifth and final. Does this lead to God being glorified 
in my dependence on him. And this brings us back to where we started. For a man, I don't want to acknowledge that I need help. I am sufficient in this. I am, I am the king of my kingdom. I am the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the master of my destiny. If the way that I'm living is stoking that, then that is not the wisdom of God. But if the way that I am living is calling me to a greater degree of surrender to the Lord, a greater sacrifice for Him, a, a, a greater lessening of my glory and the increasing of His, that is likely to be the wisdom of God. Because that is what He is doing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of you know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Which for a man is a very hard thing. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he will make your path straight. Now, we love the thought of the path straight, don't we? But recognize that that is the conclusion of trusting in God, not leaning on myself, acknowledging God in all my areas, not compartmentalizing, not being the double-minded man, but being totally for him as best I can, and none of us do it perfectly. I'm not calling to some, like, super Christian thing. But to the best that I can, I'm trying to acknowledge you, God, in all areas of my life. I'm not hiding. I'm not reserving. It's all yours. Then he will make our paths straight. Now, straight paths are not easy paths. It's not necessarily the easy way that he's going to lead us in. But the paths are set out for us. And the godly man can rest in the fact that his ways are always good. Always good. And I just want to conclude by saying that every man here has failed miserably to do this consistently. Which is one more reason for us to worship and adore the only real man who has ever lived. Jesus, who every moment of his life rested and surrendered to the will of his Father, who even in the darkest moments said this, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, not my way, not what I prefer. I prefer what you prefer. May your will be done. Now that's a man to worship. That's a man much different than every other man that has ever walked this planet. He indeed is our hero and our king. 1 Peter 2.23, speaking of Christ, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly.